1 Corinthians 11 will be the first passage we uh, think about. 1 Corinthians 11. As advertised, we are having our monthly Q&A night, and I did make the executive decision that uh, we're only going to do two questions, not the original three I had prepared. And uh, by the end of it, it'll be at the very end will be the reason why, because there's a, a link, uh, more time I want to spend on something, but uh, we'll get there when we get there. Question one, what does it mean, quote, Christ was broken? So this question is getting at the fact that in one place, it seems in the Bible, Jesus is said to be broken, his body is said to be broken on the cross, but in another place in the New Testament, it's important to the author that there were no bones broken in Jesus. And so the question is sort of, what, what do we make of this, this word broken? Is this a word we can use of Jesus? What does it mean when we come across it? So let's begin where the place where it says Christ's body was broken. So this is 1 Corinthians 11, and this is verse 24. Paul is recounting what... Uh, recounting the, uh, the oral teaching in which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He's reporting it, reminding it again to the Corinthians. It says this in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Your version might say, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So to begin with, let's start with the technical stuff. My translation does not actually use the word broken in verse 24, but rather it is simply for you. Not broken for you, but simply for you. I have a footnote in my translation that says some manuscripts have, quote, broken for. Uh, If you have a King James or New King James version, it does have that word, broken for you. So... This is an example of what's sometimes called a textual variation. Um, We do not have the autographs of the New Testament. We don't have the document that Paul himself took uh, pen to paper, and we don't have that exact thing. But what we do have are a large number of copies from which we can piece together with great confidence what the original authors wrote. What's remarkable about these copies is their vast number, first of all, and their great agreement with one another, instilling in us confidence that we really can know what the New Testament authors wrote. There are a few times, however, when uh, the witness of these various manuscripts is divided. And in this case, the manuscripts on which the King James Version had relied, the King James is written much earlier than mine, the ESV or others like an American Standard, the manuscripts on which the King James Version relied did use the word broken, But more recent translations, which use a greater number of manuscripts, manuscripts that have been more recently discovered, and ironically, the more recently you discover a manuscript, usually the older that manuscript is, um, the more recent translations which have access to more and uh, older uh, manuscripts omit it because those manuscripts tend to omit it. Uh, If you read the gospel accounts of this same event, where Matthew reports Jesus saying these words, you'll find it reflects this translation without the word broken. It'll say something like, Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body which is given, given for you. So, I could make sort of a technical argument here 
And I could say, well, the New Testament doesn't actually say Jesus' body was broken. That might be correct. But I do think there is a reasonable case. There is something to the idea Jesus' body was broken. I don't hate that idea. I don't think that's totally wrong. One could argue that what he does with the bread at the Last Supper, he broke it, is symbolic of what would happen to him later that night, that he would be broken even as the bread which represents his body is broken. If we make a lot of that breaking of the bread, then I could see a symbolic connection. Now, this is another, another hint that I don't hate this idea. Um, Isaiah 53 does not use this exact word broken, but it does speak in similar terms of what would happen to the Messiah. Isaiah 53 and verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Crushed. So that gets to something like broken. If you read the crucifixion account, of course, you read of a man being systematically killed, beaten, scourged, nails driven through him. The crucified Jesus is a man who is broken in a sense, who is being being crushed. There are also hymns about the crucifixion which use the word broken to describe what happened to Jesus on the cross. And I think most of them are probably following the King James Version. There is a, a song that we sometimes sing in preparation for the Lord's Supper called In Remembrance. It's number 163 in our big books that has this, I believe it's the second verse. We recall his broken body as we look upon the bread. Give you thanks, divide and eat it. In my memory, he said. I think that's a fair poetic comparison. As we look on the bread that we break in the Lord's Supper, we think of Jesus' broken body. Now, so that's the 1 Corinthians, that's the idea of Jesus being broken. But the question is getting at the fact that the New Testament also seems to say something else. This is John 19. Go through to John 19. The question is getting at the fact that John makes a big deal out of the fact that no bones of Jesus were broken on the cross. And it's very important that we understand Jesus didn't have any broken bones. John 19, this is verse 33. John 19 and verse 33. But when they, some of the Roman soldiers, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. Verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, quote, not one of his bones will be broken. So John here makes a big deal out of the fact that Jesus' bones were not broken on the cross. They went to break his legs here in order to speed along his death, only to discover, however, he was already dead, no need to break his legs, no need to speed up his death. And for John, this is not just an extra little detail. This is the fulfillment of scripture Quote, verse 36, that not one of his bones would be broken. There are a few Old Testament scriptures which say something to that effect. And John is is referring at least to one of them, if not all of them, at once. The first, I think, main one, that scripture that's being fulfilled in this detail, is the central part of the Passover feast. And the central part of that feast is, of course, the lamb. The sacrificial substitute for Israel's firstborn, so that their children could be saved, this lamb was killed in their place. 
And a great emphasis of the institution of that meal is on the condition of the lamb and how spotless and unblemished it is to be. And so, Exodus 12 and verse 46, Numbers 9 and verse 12 both speak of this and say something like, you shall not break any of its bones. The significance John finds in the fact of Jesus' unbroken legs is that it illustrates Jesus' role as our new and our perfect Passover lamb. He is the new sacrifice through which we are saved from judgment. Just as that lamb was a sacrifice that saved Israel from judgment in Egypt, Jesus is our sacrifice that saves us from God's judgment. If you read 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, uh, Paul makes this connection between Jesus and Passover lamb explicit. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus is our Passover lamb, and John really wants us to understand that. That's wrapped up in that detail of his bones not being broken. There's probably also an echo here of Psalm 34. Psalm 34 says, Many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. If John is echoing this text also, then he wants us to see Jesus' intact bones as sort of a foreshadowing of Jesus' vindication and resurrection. And so we are to think of Jesus as the afflicted righteous man, like the Psalm 34 man, but also to see Jesus as about to be delivered through the other side of his affliction, like the man in Psalm 34 was. So back to our question. Which is it? What does it mean for Christ to be broken? Was Jesus actually broken? Can we use that word to describe him or not? It is an important detail in the story. Jesus' bones were not broken. We must insist on that. That's important to the biblical story. It's important for the fulfillment of Scripture. It's an important symbolic detail for understanding Jesus as our sacrifice, as our Passover lamb. However, I don't think the King James Version or Lord's Supper songs which use the word broken to describe Jesus' body, I don't think those are a grave contradiction to all of that. They don't have to be. We can say confidently Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. We could say Jesus was a broken man. He allowed himself to be broken so that we could be made whole, so that we could be healed. I think we can speak in those poetic terms while understanding he met the requirements for the Passover, Passover lamb. I hope that answers the question. It's a good one. And it's just one of those things that I think whoever asks it, it shows they're paying attention and they're, they're asking good questions of the text. So that's our first question. What does it mean Christ was broken? Question number two, <clears throat> how do we explain Romans 13, 1 through 5, in light of dictators and tyrants? So go to Romans 13 with me. Romans 13. So there's going to be three parts to my answer. Number one, I just want to talk through the first few verses of Romans 13. I have talked through these verses in Q&A night before, uh, about a year ago or so, I had a question about Romans 13. Uh, you probably don't remember that. I have trouble remembering that. But I do want to start there again and talk through the text. Because before we bring our questions to the text, it's important to understand the text in its own terms before we begin to ask it to address our concerns. That's, I think, where we run into a lot of problems with understanding the Bible. We try to see how it addresses our questions before we, uh, when we should begin with understanding the concerns of the original author and audience. 
So number one, we're going to talk through Romans 13. Number two, I'm going to make three observations about what Paul and Romans 13 have to say about this question, address it pretty directly. And then number three, I want to bring up a modern example of someone who is living under a dictatorial regime, who is suffering under that dictatorial regime as a Christian, and who is trying to comport themselves according to the text. I want to read something, a modern example of someone who is, I think, wrestling and thinking through this very question. So let's begin with the text. Romans 13. Uh, one, one more preface. Romans 12 and Romans 13 are actually about the same thing. This is an arbitrary chapter break. Sometimes they are. And the through line of Romans 12 and 13 is the, is the, is the uh, theme of vengeance. The last part of Romans 12 is about vengeance, and so is the beginning of Romans 13. In the end of Romans 12, it's about how it's not the disciples' place to take it, but rather we are to leave it in the hands of God. And so Romans 12 and verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is God's to take, and it's not ours to take. And we believe, of course, God enacts that vengeance finally and completely in Judgment Day, which the wicked answer to God and are avenged for all the evil that they have done. But Romans 13 says that doesn't mean God is totally neglecting vengeance between now and Judgment Day. Of course, on Judgment Day, the vengeance comes once and for all completely and perfectly. But in between now and then, God is still doing vengeance, and he's doing that largely through civil government. Romans 13 and verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Do then what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So we'll stop there. So the theme of the paragraph is verse 1. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Be subject, your version might say, be in subjection or submit. Submit means to accept, to yield to the authority, to the will of another. Now, who does Paul say should be subject? Who should submit themselves to governing authorities? Does he say it's only the people who like the governing authorities? Is it only the people who voted for the governing authorities? Is it only the people whose ideologies match up perfectly with the governing authorities? How many people in verse 1? Let every person, he says. It's worth noting, I think. Probably no Christian in Rome, in the place where the people received this letter, probably no Christian in Rome liked the governing authorities of Rome. Certainly, no one, no, none of the Christians in Rome voted for the governing authorities because no one voted for Caesar. And it is certain that their ideologies of the Christians in Rome did not match up perfectly with the ideologies of Caesar. And yet, Paul writes these words to Christians in Rome He writes these words to them all the same. So our next question is, all right, be subject. Why should I? What right do they have over me? Don't you know Caesar is a pagan? Caesar is godless. Caesar does all these evil things. 
Here's Paul's answer to that question. Why should I be subject? Second half of verse 1, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. God is the only one in the entire universe with actual authority. He is the only one who is sovereign, who no one tells him what to do. God is the only one of whom that could absolutely be said. Every being in creation is subject to him, and every being in creation will answer to him. He is the one with all the authority. He is the only truly sovereign one. There is no authority except from God, Paul says. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate? He said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. So you think you have authority, guess what? The only reason you have it is because the God who actually has it let you have some of it. And so if someone other than God is going to have legitimate authority, then it must have been given them by this sovereign God. And Paul says, that's precisely what has happened. God has granted authority to civil rulers, civil authorities. As he says, those that exist have been instituted by God. If that's true then, then to resist those civil authorities is to resist one whom God has appointed. And of course, you don't want to be found resisting God. Again, as he says in verse 2, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. In verses 3 through 5, Paul encourages his readers to keep their conduct good relative to the state. The rule for Christians is subjection, not insurrection. That is the rule Christians abide by, subjection, not insurrection. We have a work to do in the kingdom of God. We are about that work, not the work of sort of of, uh, regime change. So I believe positively, before we get to the questions of dictator... Positively, this is what these verses are saying. It's pretty clear. God, first of all, does want there to be civil government. He does want there to be that. He does not want there to be anarchy. It's an institution that he appoints and he uses for his purposes. And Christians need to recognize that God-appointed role of the state. God does appoint and God does use civil government. And because Christians know that, we respect civil authority as a rule. So, How do we explain Romans 13, then, in light of dictators and tyrants and despots? Are they instituted by God, too, those really evil guys? What if they're acting as a terror to good conduct instead of a terror to evil conduct like they're supposed to be? Must one be in subjection to them, too? Didn't Paul think of all of this? And I want to say definitively, absolutely, Paul did think of all of this. So here's the second part of my answer as we address sort of uh, a few points. So three points here. Number one, I want to say definitively, Paul knew that Caesar was not a great and godly man. Paul knew that. When discussions happen around Romans 13, discussions about the role of government, discussions about the Christian's relationship to uh, civil government, it's easy to forget in all of our hypotheticals, in all of our modern sort of thinking about it, It's easy to forget Romans 13 originally appeared in a letter to a group of people living in the city of Rome in the first century. This was the capital of the Roman Empire. This was the home of Caesar and the seat of the Roman government. This is no hypothetical political philosophy in Romans 13. This is a letter to people who live in the belly of the beast. 
when Paul mentions governing authorities and rulers, his original readers are putting names to those titles. And do you know the name they were putting to this? First and foremost, you know who the supreme ruler was at the writing of this letter? It's written around A.D. 57. The Caesar at that time was a guy named Nero. Not a great guy. You don't have to be a history buff. Not a great guy. So the first thing we can say about this question is we can be certain. Paul did not overlook the possibility that the God-instituted ruler might be a despot. Because the one who was in power at that time was, as Paul wrote these words. That also means that the fact that a ruler might not be a great and godly man doesn't nullify Romans 13. It doesn't. Second, Paul in Romans 13 does not justify in this text, does not justify every action of Caesar. It does not justify every action of Caesar. This passage has been used that way. It has been used to sort of justify tyranny, justify abuse and oppression and war and all sorts of state-sanctioned sin. There are despots that have gotten a hold of Romans 13, pointed to it, and said, See, the fact that I'm in power means I've been appointed by God. Which means if you resist my authority, God will judge you. That is actually precisely what the leaders in apartheid South Africa said. They used Romans 13 to try to keep people, keep people in line. Say, look, we're here because of God, so just listen to us and let us do what we want. That is exactly not what this passage means. This passage is not giving any governing authority a blank slate to do whatever they want. If anything, this passage underscores their role as steward. Their role is acting on behalf of one greater than them. It's really a passage that should properly humble a governing official and not make him proud. Maybe an analogy would help illustrate it. for For a sort of ruler, a civil ruler to point at this and say, look, God says I can do what I want, is a bit like a husband saying, Look, God put me in charge of the household. I've been appointed by God, which means, of course, I can beat my wife. And I can drink however much I want, and I can terrorize my family. It's okay, because look what the Bible says. The husband is the head of the wife. What great wisdom he has. No. These verses do not mean God approves of the action of every bloodthirsty tyrant or genocidal dictator or crooked and immoral and lying politician or any bribe-taking official. These verses do not baptize the sins of civil authority any more than Ephesians 5 baptizes the sins of an abusive husband. The authorities God appoints are accountable to God for how they use their authority. They are subject, by the way, to every other part of God's word, not just this one. They're also accountable, for example they'll also be held accountable for how well they lived out the the Sermon on the Mount, for example. This isn't the only passage that would tell someone in power how they should live. And of course, Paul knew this. If those authorities demand God's people forsake the only sovereign authority in the universe, God, if the civil authorities say, forget that bigger authority over me, and if there is a choice to be made between serving this sort of this uh, underling authority, this counterfeit authority, and the actual authority in the universe, it's obvious to God's people whose authority we obey. If Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar makes a law that we must bow down to him, only address him in prayer, every disciple, every true follower of God would know to politely disobey that command and just keep on worshiping and praying to the true God, which is exactly what Daniel and his friends did. 
In Acts 5, Peter is threatened by another governing authority to stop preaching the gospel, to which he replied, we must obey God rather than man. Remember, Jesus said, if Caesar asks for his coin back, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. If it's got his picture on it, then give it to him. But if Caesar asks to render unto Caesar the things that belong to God, if Caesar, for example, were to ask for worship, if Caesar were to ask for our ultimate uh, our ultimate undivided allegiance, if Caesar were to ask for our exclusive devotion, then Jesus would say, just go ahead and keep giving God what belongs to God and do not give to Caesar what belongs to God. And so the second thing I want to underscore is that Paul, in this passage, does not justify every action of Caesar. And then number three, Paul knew that all, including Caesar, would one day answer to God. If you read the Old Testament, you know that this idea, this idea that God raises up and uses rulers for his purposes, even God raises up and uses very wicked rulers for his purposes, if you read your Old Testament, you would know this is not new at all. And this is not a question that no one's ever thought about before. So yes, we, we, we can wrap our mind around the idea that God raises up David to lead his people. And we say, okay, yeah, I can see how that works. There's a righteous man leading his people to more righteousness. But you know what God also does in the Old Testament? He raises up men like Pharaoh for his purposes too. Actually, this goes back to something he's already said in Romans 9. Look in Romans 9 and verse 17, where Paul reminds us, Romans 9, 17, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God says, I raised you up. God allowed Pharaoh to wield power. And Pharaoh wielded that power in quite evil ways. And of course, God raising up God raising up and using Pharaoh is not an endorsement of all that Pharaoh does. And we know from the book of Exodus, it does not exclude Pharaoh from judgment. Pharaoh's judgment comes all right. God also raises up Babylon. He raises up Nebuchadnezzar to come enact judgment on his own wicked people. Interestingly, think about it this way. If, governors are, if, if civil rulers are to be a terror to evil conduct, in the case of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, they're raised up to be a terror to Israel's evil conduct. That was their role. And yet, eventually, Babylon too was judged for its cruelty and its sadism. In Jeremiah 50, the prophet describes Babylon as a hammer in God's hand, a tool, an instrument of God to enact his justice, his judgment. But eventually in Jeremiah 50, here's what happens, quote, The hammer of the whole earth is cut down and broken. How Babylon has become a horror among the nations. So the hammer, the tool of God that he uses, that he lets become powerful, is eventually itself crushed and judged. So to sum up, Romans 13 does not mean God endorses the character of Caesar. Certainly not. It does not mean God gives Caesar a blank slate to do whatever he wants. And it does not mean that the dictator will be exempt from judgment. Basically my answer is this. Paul wrote Romans 13, knowing about dictators in a very first-hand personal way. Which brings us to the third part of my answer. So I want to share something uh, with you from someone who I think is trying to answer this question, though not in a hypothetical Q&A kind of way, but in real life. So I'll read you here um, the prologue to what I'm about to read, which describes a situation 
and then I'll read to you the, uh, the words of this man. So here's the prologue to this uh, letter I'm about to read. Uh, it says, Over 100 members of the Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China, were arrested beginning Sunday, December 9th, 2018. <laughs> Among those taken away were Pastor Wang Yi, senior pastor of Early Rain Church, and his wife were not heard from for weeks. Foreseeing this circumstance, Pastor Yang Wei, Wang Yi, wrote the declaration below to be published by his church should he be detained for more than 48 hours. In it, he explains the meaning and necessity of faithful disobedience, how it is distinct from political activism or civil disobedience, and how Christians should carry it out. On December 26, 2019, Wang Yi was secretly tried in Chengdu Intermediate People's Court. On December 30th, the court announced that Wang Yi was sentenced to nine years of criminal detention and fined 50,001. This is the longest sentence given to a house church pastor uh, in a decade. So what I'm about to read here is that document that he said, publish this, should I be held for more than, more than two days? There's a lot to digest here. Originally, I was going to cut pretty severely, but the more I read, I'd come across something else where he'd mentioned something in Romans 13, and I thought, thought through it um, well. Um, there's a lot to digest here. I'm not certain of all the doctrinal commitments of this preacher, but I just want us to hear him. You hear it several times, asserting his conviction that Romans 13 is true in his circumstance and is to be, and is to be abided by. Even in the midst of that evil regime, we're still trying to live in a holy way, even while suffering under that dictatorial regime. And he also takes great pains in this letter to distinguish his behavior from sort of secular political activism and thinks that's an important thing to discern between. So I'm going to read this to you. If um, you want to read it on your own, there's a lot here. I'll be happy to forward you, forward you a copy of it. So here it goes. He says, On the basis of the teachings of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I respect the authorities God has established in China. For God deposes kings and God raises up kings. This is why I submit to the historical and institutional arrangements of God in China. As a pastor of a Christian church, I have my own understanding and views based on the Bible about what righteous order and good government is. At the same time, I'm filled with anger and disgust at the persecution of the church by this communist regime, at the wickedness of their depriving people of the freedoms of religion and conscience. But changing social and political institutions is not the mission I have been called to. And it is not the goal for which God has given his people in the gospel. For all hideous realities, unrighteous politics, and arbitrary laws manifest the cross of Jesus Christ, the only means by which every Chinese person must be saved. They also manifest the fact that true hope in a perfect society will never be found in the transformation of any earthly institution or culture, but only in our sins being freely forgiven by Christ and in the hope of eternal life. As a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel, my teaching, and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love of that glorious king. Every man's life is extremely short, and God fervently commands the church to lead and call any man to repentance who is willing to repent. Christ is eager and willing to forgive all who turn from their sins. This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China, to testify to the world about our Christ to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to the earthly, momentary lives about heavenly, eternal life. 
This is also the pastoral calling that I have received. For this reason, I accept and respect the fact that this communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. Wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people, the goal being to urge God's people to repent and turn again toward him. For this reason, I am joyfully willing to submit myself to their enforcement of the law as though submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. At the same time, I believe this communist regime's persecution against the church is greatly wicked and unlawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. But this does not mean that my personal disobedience and the disobedience of the church is in any sense, quote, fighting for rights or political activism in the form of civil disobedience, because I do not have the intention of changing any institutions or laws of China. As a pastor, the only thing I care about is the disruption of man's sin by this faithful disobedience and the testimony it bears for the cross of Christ. As a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience in this case. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, but to testify about another world. For the mission of the church is only to be the church and not to become a part of any secular institution. From a negative perspective, the church must separate itself from the world and keep itself from being institutionalized by the world. From a positive perspective, all acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. The Bible teaches, that, teaches us that in all manners relating to the gospel and human conscience, we must obey God rather than man. For this reason, spiritual disobedience and bodily suffering are both ways we testify to another eternal world and to another glorious king. This is why I'm not interested in changing any political or legal institutions in China. I'm not even interested in the question of when the communist regime's policies persecuting the church will change. Regardless of which regime I live under now or in the future, as long as the secular government continues to persecute the church, violating human consciences that belong to God alone, I will continue my faithful disobedience. But the entire commission God has given me is to let more Chinese people know through my actions that the hope of humanity and society is only in the redemption of Christ. If God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people despair of their futures, to lead them through a wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through this make them know Jesus, if through this he continues disciplining and building up his church, then I am joyfully and willing to submit to God's plans, for his plans are always benevolent and good. Precisely because none of my words or actions are directed at seeking and hoping for societal and political transformation, I have no fear of any social or political power. For the Bible teaches us that God establishes governmental authorities in order to terrorize evildoers, not to terrorize doers of good. If believers in Jesus do no wrong, then they should not be afraid of dark powers. Even though I am often weak, I firmly believe this is the promise of the gospel. It is what I've devoted all my energy to. It is the good news that I am spreading throughout Chinese society. I also understand that this happens to be the very reason why the communist regime is filled with fear at a church that is no longer afraid of it. 
If I am imprisoned for a long or short period of time, if I can help reduce the authorities' fear of my faith and of my Savior, I am joyfully willing to help them in this way. But I know that only when I renounce all wickedness of this persecution against the church and use peaceful means to disobey will I truly be able to help the souls of the authorities and law enforcement. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Regardless of what crime the government charges me with, whatever filth they fling at me, as long as this, church is related, this charge is related to my faith, my writings, my comments, and my teachings, it is merely a lie and temptation of demons. I categorically deny it. I will serve my sentence, but I will not serve the law. I will be executed, but I will not plead guilty. This is the final page. Moreover, I must also point out the persecution against the Lord's church and against all Chinese people who believe in Jesus Christ is the most wicked and the most horrendous evil of Chinese society. This is not only a sin against Christians. It is also a sin against all non-Christians. For the government is brutally and ruthlessly threatening them and hindering them from coming to Jesus. There is no greater wickedness in the world than this. If this regime is one day overthrown by God, it will be for no other reason than God's righteous punishment and revenge for this evil. For on earth... There has only ever been a thousand-year church. There has never been a thousand-year government. There is only eternal faith, and no, there is no eternal power. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me that he would grant me patience and wisdom, that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. And so he concludes, respectable officers addressing his imprisoners, the people who imprisoned him. Respectable officers, stop committing evil. This is not for my benefit, but rather for yours and your children's. I plead earnestly with you to stay your hands, for why should you be willing to pay the price of eternal damnation in hell for the sake of a lowly sinner such as I? Jesus is the Christ, Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King, and the king of the whole earth, yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant, and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God, and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. So there's a lot to digest there. Originally I was looking for places to cut, and I would just keep reading and say, well, I've got to include that. <clears throat> what I want you to appreciate here, is that he really is affirming the truth of all that Romans 13 teaches. He says that at several points. Even as he suffers under it, and even as he bears witness to that evil regime, that there is a God who has given them this authority that they are wielding so poorly. And he continues to exercise his faith in God, no matter what man does to him. 
So maybe there's someone here this evening that realizes you have not been treating God as king. You've been acting like other men have greater power than they actually have. You've been afraid of of things you ought not be afraid of. There's only one who we should fear, and it is God. If there's anyone who needs to respond, to come submit themselves to our sovereign God, come forward now as we stand and sing. Have I not thy sins been nailed to the cross? Is thy heart right with God? Dost thou count all things for Jesus but lost? Is thy heart right with God? Is thy heart right with God? Washed in the crimson flood, cleansed and made holy, humble and lowly, right in the sight of God. Are all thy powers under Jesus' control? Is thy heart right with God? Does he each moment abide in thy soul? Is thy heart right with God? Is thy heart right with God? Washed in the crimson flood, cleansed and made holy, humble and lowly, right in the sight of God. Are there those that need to protect the Lord's Supper?